take your Bible and look over to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, I just wanted to spend a little time this morning uh, reminding us of the greatness of our salvation. And we've read from the text in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And we come to a wonderful, wonderful section. And then as soon as I can, as we have communion this morning, I'm praying if I can get in Jonah next week or maybe the week after that, we'll launch into that wonderful book. But Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my one of my mentors, I call him in the faith, a great preacher from Wales, uh, loved Christ, was a medical doctor before he went into a very fruitful ministry, said this in one of his sermons. He said, the more I think about it, the less surprised I am at the increasing failure of organized Christianity to appeal to the masses in these days. He said, for the plain and obvious fact is that we, who still continue to attend our places of worship, have more or less sold the past and have neglected or given away that vital principle which ever was and always will be the true heritage of the church of Christ on earth. He said, for it appears on looking into it that the church has always triumphed and had their greatest successes when she has preached the twofold message of the depravity of human nature and the absolute necessity of the direct intervention of God for its final salvation. End of quote. I can agree with him more. When the church is thriving, you're seeing articulated the depravity of man and the divine intervention of God. Lloyd-Jones went on to say, a church which preaches that, interesting, either attracts or repels. You either join her or hate her and persecute her. One thing is certain you cannot ignore her, for her message will not ignore you. It hurts. It umbraids. It condemns. It infuriates. Or else it draws and attracts you. If you feel you can save yourself, then this message, he said, insults you, annoys you. You respect the impertinence and the interference with your life. But if you feel you are lost and helpless, you run into her open arms for release and for salvation. End of quote. Well said. But you got to deal. You've got to respond to this word. So as I turn you now to Ephesians chapter 2, we're, we're flowing just, just for a moment out of Ephesians chapter 1, where it showcased salvation from God's point of view, okay? God, the work of God the Father, the work of God the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? But as we come into chapter 2, Paul is showing us how salvation took place in time and space and history. I think it'd be fair to say that we can't grasp the significance of chapter 2 apart from the end of chapter 1. If you go back in chapter 1 and you look there in his pastoral prayer, he's praying in verse 19 that we would know what is, he said, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe according to the working of his great might. He's praying there in 19 that we would understand something Something of the immeasurable, you can't measure it, but the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us 
who believe. And then what he does at the end of chapter 1 is begin to describe that power. Look at verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So that power was at operation in Christ at the resurrection of the grave on the third day. Look at verse 20. It seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So he was not only spoke of his resurrection from the dead, but the exaltation, secondly, into glory. And then if you look at verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. That's his coronation. So Paul spends the end of chapter 1 kind of spelling out the greatness of that power in the resurrection, in the exaltation, and in the coronation to the church. Now, as we come into chapter 2, that same power that raised Christ from the dead, exalting him to glory, is the same power that raises you from spiritual death and puts you into an exalted position. And what Paul's doing here in Ephesians chapter 2 is presenting the transforming power of the gospel in the life of a believer. What chapter 2 is all about is it's a spiritual biography of how the elect became saved. And like chapter 1, it is all about, excuse me, the, the work of God in your life. Now, this transforming power, just for the sake of our time this morning, includes two things that we'll look at, okay? First, our past condition in 1 through 3. And then we'll look, secondly, at our present transformation at 2, 4 through 8, okay? So I just want to remind us of what God did in your life, what God's done in my life. And we're going to look at our past condition, what we were. Then we're secondly going to look at our present transformation, what God did. Okay? What we were and what God did. Let's look first at our past condition. Our past condition. And it's in verses 1 through 3 that we read. And certainly, I think before we can glory in our salvation... Paul wants us to see the terrible predicament we were in. Look at the opening line of 2.1. Very clearly, you've seen this before if you've been in Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You literally being dead. In other words, before Christ, you were dead, being dead. You might say, well, how could that be? Pastor, I I see people alive. I see people walking. But here, Paul is referring to our spiritual condition. He basically says we were, if you can understand this, walking corpses. We were spiritual zombies. And the state of our deadness is stated, look again at verse 1, in the trespasses and sins. Trespasses was the fact that we have crossed, if you will, a known boundary. We've sinned that way. So we've trespassed. Look again in verse 1. It says, and sins, and he uses it in the plural. Sins, of course, as you know, is to miss the mark, to fall short of God's standard. And, of course, God's standard, when we said that, is absolute perfection. So when he looks at your life, when he looks at my life, before you came to Christ, it could be that you're without Christ this morning. He says, before that place of salvation, you being dead. 
Now, we certainly know from the teaching of Scripture that Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is what? Is death. And certainly it's spiritual death. It will one day lead to physical death. And it will certainly lead to eternal death before Christ. But the wages of that sin is death. Paul so articulately said in Romans 5.12 that death spread to all men because all men have what? Have sinned. Romans 6.16 says there that we are a slave of sin before Christ. Romans 6.21 says the outcome of those things is death. Now, if you look at the text again, just one more time in 2.1, and you've got to see it this way, you were dead. In other words, he's not speaking to abstract realities. He's speaking to you, and he's saying it was your sin, okay? Your trespasses, they belong to you, if you will. In other words, God is holding you directly and personally responsible for your trespasses and sins. Now, what Paul is saying here, and we'll see it in a moment, is that in light of our past condition, you were, is this fair? And I'm, I'm not thinking that all of you have heard this teaching before, okay? So listen carefully, and I'm not trying to be... Uh, I'm not trying to be rude to you or in any way arrogant to you. But when you just look at that statement, I just have to unpack it. I think as I got into it more, I thought, whoa, this is going to be quite a message. If you've not heard teaching out of the scripture like this, you were before Christ unable to respond to the things of God. Okay. You say, well, how so, Scott? Well, because you're dead. You're not partly dead. You're not sort of dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The reformers used to speak of this phrase of being dead in our sin as total depravity, okay? Total depravity. In other words, before Christ, we were depraved. Now, let me just explain that just for a moment. Total depravity does not mean... Let me explain what it is in a moment. But it does not mean that every individual is, de- is as depraved as they could be. That's not what total depravity means, okay? It doesn't mean that everybody is sinning in the greatest possible way in everybody's individual life. Nor does total depravity mean that sinners do not have a conscience. We know from men's equippers, Russ Zakarian just taught on that, that we have a conscience, okay? So it doesn't mean that sinners do not have a conscience because Romans 2.15 says all of the world has a conscience. Thirdly, somewhat similar to the first one, total depravity does not mean that sinners indulge in every form of sin. That's not what it means. I think some people just get blunted by the word. It doesn't mean that every single person that you know that is unredeemed indulges in every form of sin. In fact, far from it, some people are self-righteous and they try to do good things. Fourthly, it does not mean that people cannot perform actions that are good or kind. I believe they can perform actions that are good and kind. I remember when Paul got shipwrecked, it says that the people on the island showed him extraordinary kindness. That's part of the Imago Dei. So it doesn't mean that people can't perform an action that is good or kind. What total depravity simply but profoundly means is that depravity or our sin extends to every part of man's nature. 
That's what it means. In other words, because of the fall of man, it affects our will, Ephesians chapter 2. Because of the fall in the garden, it affects our mind, Ephesians 4.17. Because of the fall, it affects our affections. It affects our emotions, Romans chapter 3. It affects our speech. It affects our behavior, Mark 7.21. In other words, the whole of man is affected, and it permeates every facet of man's nature. That's what it means to be depraved. I'm thinking of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It gives a clear statement on man's depravity. It's a bit wordy, but I I think you can get it. It says, man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of the will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from God and dead to sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. In other words, because man has sinned, There is no way that a man by his own effort and by his own strategy can seek the things of God. And so because of the fall in Genesis 3, man is unable to savingly believe the gospel. And there might be question among some, how far has he fallen? Let me see if I could paint a picture of it this way for you. Some people believe, and they would recognize that, yes, man has fallen, but there's still good parts of him, and he can still seek after God. So what I likened it, if, if some people who think, yeah, there's still parts of man that are good, put the illustration this way. If I was at my home in Kingsburg, and I jumped off the roof of my house, you'd probably say, well, pastor, you, you probably wouldn't die. And I'd agree with you, I probably wouldn't die. If I jumped off the roof of my house, I certainly wouldn't die. I don't think so. I think I'd get hurt. I think I'd break my leg. I think I'd break my hip. Might break my ankles. Maybe I'd break my elbow, my arms, so forth, shoulders. But if you jumped off the house, the likelihood of you living is, is, is high. And I think some people think when they think the fall of man, that man, because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, has fallen off a house and he kind of limps through life, kind of, he kind of walks through life with a limp. He, he's affected by his sin, but it's not horrible, horrible it's not total, he, he's still good, he's still, and he's limping. No, the, the picture of script, the scripture, and I don't know if you can see this, is go to Chicago and go up to the Sears Tower which at one point was the highest building in the world. Get on top of the Sears Tower and jump off the Sears Tower and tell me if you can live. I mean, we're laughing. We know we couldn't live, right? You would just be, at that point, splattered on the ground, and that's why they have glass around the Sears Tower, because if you threw a penny off, it would go through somebody's skull on the bottom because it would come down the velocity so fast. So I think when you read Scripture, man has not fallen off the house. Man has fallen off the Sears Tower. You say, well, Scott, how could that be? Well, I'm telling you, in 2-1, he's dead. In other words, there's no EKG on the monitor. And as a result of that sin, look at verse 3. He says, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath. In other words, we were dead in our sins, 
by choice and were doomed by the nature by nature at birth. We are on a one-way ticket to hell. That's the teaching of the scripture. Now, I don't know if people believe that. I mean, I'm on my way to Montana, and there's two seats. Me, if you can picture this in the aisle, and a woman next to the window, okay? And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm studying on the fly all the time, right? So I'm studying my message to teach in Bozeman on sensibility. And for men, I had one message to the men that he only says one thing in Titus, young men, be sensible, okay? And she sees me marking it up, and about a half hour in, I didn't say anything to her, but I'm always praying. She says to me, man, you're a tough editor. I said, oh, you know, I'm not editing somebody's work. I'm editing my sermon I'm preaching in Bozeman where we're flying to. And I begin to talk about my sermon to her. See, this is what happens. You've got to be sensible. And he only tells the young men to be sensible. And I begin to share the word with her. And it became very clear, sitting next to this woman, a very educated woman, teaches at universities, flies all over the country in helping plants and so forth with uh, disease and going against disease. Very educated woman. And it became very clear that she didn't think she was a sinner. And when I told her a little bit of my testimony and I turned my Bible on my phone, that's what you have to do, turn it on, right? And I showed her James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point has become what? Guilty of all. I said, see, I committed one sin and I, was, and I saw her flinch. I, she just, she's, you know, just her face. And she said, I don't believe that. I said, well, this is the teaching of the scripture. If you... Just commit one sin, it's enough to send you to an eternity without Christ. She says, I don't, I don't believe that. She wasn't rude. Now, I'm talking to her. She can't get out because I'm in the aisle, right? She's against the window. She, you know, and so all of a sudden, we're embroiled in this, in this conversation. And, and, I, and she goes, you know, I just don't believe there's only one way. And that this is the way that, you know, the, I don't think you could be so over dogmatic. I said, oh, you know what? Many people believe that. But you know what? Let me just show you this. And I hit John 14, 6, and I met her read it. See, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through what? Me. See, the reason it's so exclusive is, gee, and I just saw her flinch. I saw her flinch. And, and, and then I said, you know, and I'm speaking to the women in Bozeman on Proverbs 31 on the fear of the Lord. And she kind of flinched again. Just I saw her face, and she wasn't being rude. It just, it just it hit an educated woman that she says, I don't like the fear of God. I don't think we should tell people about the fear of God. I said, well, you know, the Bible says that he's, you know, and I went into this year, but I just want you to know that even as we come to communion, when, when you look back at your life, at my life, the Bible's very clear. We're totally depraved. Doesn't mean we've sinned in every possible way possible. It just means that our depravity of sin permeates our mind, our heart, our will, our inclination, our desires. It's tainted by sin. This is the teaching of Scripture. Genesis 6 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intent of his heart was continually evil. 
Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, the hearts of the son of men are full of evil. You know, Jeremiah 17.9, that the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately, what? Sick. See, unless you come to an understanding of your sin, you never need a savior. And I just tried to appeal to this woman, but our hearts are sick. Who can understand it? I think most indicting is Jesus in Mark 7, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, the fornications, the thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus said all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. That's why one cartoon I read said, we've met the enemy and the enemy is us. Is it not? Sin is in our heart. It's in our heart. And until one understands that, we'll never know our need of a savior. I'm thinking of Jesus in John 3, 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. You know, and when you begin to unpack anthropology, if you will, the doctrine of man, you see it all over the scripture. And the extent of what I'm talking about is universal. Such like this, 2 Chronicles 6, 36. For there is no man who does not sin. It's nobody. Okay? That's what it says. Psalm 143, verse 2. For in thy sight, no man living is righteous. It's universal. It's you this morning as well. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I've made my heart clean and I am pure from my sin? Who can say that? The answer is no one. Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So sin is permanent in our heart, if you will. It's universal in its effect. And certainly you can quote with me Isaiah 53. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his what? His own way. So I'm in 4.30 in the morning. I'm leaving Prague to go to Bozeman. And John picks me up at the hotel. I got 20 minutes in the car with him right? And I, John, do you know anything about the 4.30 in the morning? I'm trying to have a conversation with him, but why not? He's got to drive me to the airport, right? John, do you know anything about the Lord? And a very typical re- check response. I don't mean that demeaning, but a very typical 95% response out of a thousand people. Oh no, I am an atheist. You ask nine out of 10 people in the Czech, Albania, probably more Czech, they'll tell you that they're an atheist. And so he's turned his own way, has he not? I began to try to share with him, told him to read the scripture. But the point being here is that left to ourselves, we're spiritually dead. I want to say it this way. We have no power within ourselves to change our nature and come to Christ. You say, well, how could that be, Scott? Certainly if I I, I look back and I begin to seek God and I begin to, well, listen, there's no power in yourself to seek God. You're dead. (laughs) You're not partly dead. You're not sort of dead. You're dead. The EKG is a flat line, spiritually speaking. 
You're, you, you are not pursuing him. And I'm thinking of Job 4, 14, 4. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? There's not one. There's nobody who can make clean out of the unclean. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do, he said, evil. In other words, those who you can't do good who are accustomed to evil. So now here's the question. How do we change? How do you come to Christ? How does man bring about this change? And the teaching of the scripture is, what is it? You can't. (laughs) You can't. So what do you mean I can't? You're spiritually dead. You cannot deliver yourself. You have not fallen off the home. You've fallen off the Sears Tower and if you will, not to be gross, but are splattered on the ground, permeated at every facet of your being with sin, you can do nothing. But listen, that's not the end of the story, as you know. Praise be to God, because what you cannot do, who can? God. Look at the text in verse 4. A great statement. It says, but God. It's a great statement. One of the greatest statements in the Bible. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, what? Alive together. Listen, this is the work of God. You were spiritually dead, but God, here's the text, made you alive. I mean, that's what it says. Look at it again. Verse 5, we were dead in our trespasses. And he says, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. You're spiritually dead, but God makes you alive. You're walking in chapter 2, verse 2, according to the course of sin. But God then saves you and he prepares your life for good works. You're walking chapter 2, verse 2, after the course of this world. But God then seats you later in chapter 2 in the heavenly places. You're in bondage in chapter 2, verse 2, to the devil. But God places you in Christ Jesus in 5, 6. You were once a son of disobedience, but God made you his workmanship. You were once a child of wrath in 2, 3, but God now lets you know his love. You were once filled with lust, 2, 2, but God, now rich in mercy, redeemed you. You were once now under the power of the air, which was the demonic realm, but God raised you up with Christ. Listen, that's power, is it not? See, Paul just wants to tell you, listen, that prayer in 119 to understand something of the greatness of the immeasurable power of Christ in you is the power that took your past condition and redeemed you. And listen, if you can believe this, the power of God that raised Jesus out of the grave is the same power that raises you. Listen, this is the teaching of Scripture. There's one hope, one solution to our lost condition, and it's God. You say, well, Scott, how did he do that? How did he do that? Well, let me take you from our past condition here secondly and finally to our present transformation. How did he do that? Well, it's in beginning in verse 4, our present transformation, and I want to look at God's character first here, sub-point, who he is, and then what he did, okay? 
First, God's character. Look at it in verse 4. It's precious. But God, being rich in what? Mercy. Say, what's that? It's God's compassion. It's God's pity. The the word speaks of his active compassion. Now now look what it says there in verse 4. He doesn't just have mercy, but it says there in 2-4 that he's rich in mercy. In other words, he's loaded with mercy. In other words, he's not only a God of wrath, but he's rich in mercy, rich in compassion. And as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment, you've got to just look at it that way. He was rich in mercy towards you. I'm thinking of these scriptures like in Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own, what? Mercy by the washing and regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you're here this morning and you partake of the Lord's table, you were not saved by what you've done. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were saved by God, who in this text, describing his character of who he is, is rich in mercy. He had mercy on you. 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's his mercy. And if you can grasp that incredible statement that we're going to get to in men's equippers in Romans 9, unbelievable, it's just stunning that it does not depend, Romans 9, 16, on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, this concept of mercy excludes any idea of merit on your part. Your salvation, and this might bother some of you. No, that's okay. But, you know, reason with me from the text, okay? Your salvation is solely based on the mercy of God. Solely. But not only mercy, look again in the text, verse 4. He's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God has mercy. God has love. This is who he is. But his love is described as great. In other words, it's much. It's it's the magnitude of his love. Or so you could even say out of the magnitude of his love with which he loved us. And we know this, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. If you're redeemed here this morning, it is absolutely humbling. It is not your merit, not your work, not your righteousness. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy and loaded with love. I'm thinking of 1 John 4, 8, where it says that God is love. That's his character. 1 John 4, 19, as we looked at some months back, we love him because he first, what? Loved us. You don't love God because you loved him. You love God because he first loved you. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. And of course, that love was demonstrated in Christ. And we know so well that God demonstrates in Romans 5.8 his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what? He died for us. 
And so he's loaded with mercy, loaded with love. And so our present transformation is because first, God's character, who he is, he's a God of mercy and love, but not just because of who he is. Secondly, because of what he did. So what did he do? This is rich. Look at verse five. Even, here's what he did. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Here's the meaning. God, prompted by his love, wealthy in his compassion, even when you were dead, you see that phrase there? He made us alive together with Christ. So what do you mean he made us alive? Well, well, that just is simply the Greek word to be born again. Same word. He made you alive. He caused you to be born again. And what that word means in theology is the doctrine of regeneration, okay? It means just simply that you are dead and he made you alive. We, we would say here to be made alive is just the, it's a new life. It's to become a new creature. It's to become a Christian. It's to become born again. Now, now look at the text again in 2.5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive. And it goes back to verse 4, but God. So you'd say it like, but God made us alive. Now, let me just help you with this. This is, this is deep theology here. Regeneration, to, to be made alive, and it's right there in the words, is an act of God in which he imparts spiritual life to you. Now, I want to be clear there. It's not like I'm, I want to try to, you know, shove this, but it's an act of God. He makes you alive. <laughs> you do not make yourself alive. He makes you alive. And I, and I hate to tell you this, but it, I, I need to. You are passive in that. You did not, just this, from the text, choose to be born again. You're dead. You did not choose to be made alive. You're dead. God, the text says, is acting on you. And what regeneration is, it is an instantaneous event. It only happens once. And once it happens, you're saved and you're redeemed. That's why it's ridiculous to walk down the aisle multiple times like my father-in-law. And I think I've told you about that. He said he got saved 50 times. What do you mean you got saved 50 times? He said, I got saved 50 times every Sunday I went to church because Monday through Saturday, I undid my salvation and I needed to go forward again. And that's how he was taught. He was taught in a very, uh, he was taught in a background that you can lose your salvation. And so he lost it every week he lived. Now listen, when God acts on you, he's the one who makes you alive. He takes your heart that is cold and breathes life into it. He takes you who are an alienated from God and pulls you into his kingdom. He takes you who once were against God and then makes your heart pliable to him. I'm thinking of Stephen Sharnock when he said the frame of the heart in his book on the doctrine of regeneration. He said the frame of the heart before the new creation and the frame of the heart after bear as great a distance as one from the other as heaven from earth. This is what happens when God saves you. 
As God and sin are the most contrary to one another, so an affection to God and affection to sin, he said, are the most contrary affections. He says it is quite another bent of heart as if a man turns from north to south. It is a position quite contrary to what it was. The heart touched by grace stands full to God as before to sin. It is stripped of perverse inclinations to sin, clothed with holy affections to God. He abhors what before he loved and loves what before he abhorred. That's what happens when God saves you. Sharnak went on, he was alienated from the life of God, but now he's alienated from the life of his lust. Nothing would before serve him, but God's departure from him. Nothing will now please him, but God's rays upon him. This is what happens when you get saved. He takes you from being dead and he breathes life. And I'd ask you this morning, have you been regenerated? Have you been born again? You say, well, Scott, I'm dead. Well, the only thing you can do is beat your breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a what? A sinner. Cry out to God. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. Ask him to redeem you. But it's all his grace, is it not? Look at Ephesians 2, verse 5. Or 5, yeah, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. And you know this statement. You get it even more fully now. We, we say it, but sometimes we don't look at it in the context. By grace, you have been, what? Saved. You understand his grace? Look at verse 8. For by grace, you have been saved through, what? Faith. You say, but Scott, I, I had faith. I, 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 I had faith. I trusted Christ. I got down on my knees. I, I trusted him. I, I know you did that. I did that. But you remember how it says, look back in 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this, what's the this? Faith is not your own doing. It is a what? It's a gift of God. You say, what does that mean? It means you cried out by faith to him, but he gave you the faith as a gift to cry out to him. I mean, it's just stunning. Your salvation, if you're taking communion this morning, is apart from any human merit. It is a total gift to you. And you say, oh, gosh, that's just, I didn't do anything. No, you didn't do anything. You say, I don't know if I can fathom that. I don't know if I've heard that. No, because we always want to take part of the credit. And I'm telling you, you can't take any credit. You're dead, EKG. You're flatlined, spiritually speaking. You can't respond to the things of God. You're after your own lust, after your own desires. God comes into your life, but God, because he's loaded in mercy, rich in grace and love, he made you alive. He breathes life into you. He causes you to be born again. And listen, it's all his grace. This is what Romans 3.24 says, that you are justified, declared righteous, by a gift of his, what? Grace. So what is grace? Well, I just gave you a, a biblical definition. It's his unmerited favor. Do, do, fair? His unmerited favor given to undeserving man. It's unmerited because you don't merit it. It's his unmerited favor given to undeserving man. He just gives you grace. Have you ever heard of the old tale that speaks of a man who died and faced the angel Gabriel at heaven's gates? Here's how it goes. Said the angel to the man. He said, here's how it works. You need a hundred points to get into heaven. You tell me the good things that you have done, and I'll give you a certain number of points for each of them. The more good works you cite, the more points you get for it. And when you get to a hundred points, sound good? You get in. Okay. 
the man said. I was married to the same woman for 50 years, and I never cheated on her. It's pretty significant, huh? That's wonderful, said Gabriel. That's worth three points. Three points. I mean, the man was shocked. He said, well, I, I attended church all of my life and supported the ministry with my money and service. Terrific, said Gabriel. That's certainly worth a point. <laughs> One point, said the man with his eyes. I mean, they're beginning to show the guy's getting panicked. Well, how about this? He said, I, I opened a shelter for the homeless in my city, fed needy people by the hundreds during the holidays. Fantastic, said Gabriel. That's worth, he said, two points. And the man said, two points. He's, he's crying in desperation. And the man said, at this rate, the only way that I will get into heaven is by the grace of God. To which Gabriel replied, come on in, come on in. That's the truth. I mean, we should be stunned coming to the Lord's table, don't you think? But how many of you would concur with Luther regarding his own understanding of God's grace. Here's what Luther said. He said, It will be exceedingly difficult to get it into another habit of thinking in which we clearly separate faith from works of love. He says, Even though we are now in faith, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, After all, I have preached so long and lived so well and done so much. Surely he will take this into account. You see, Luther's saying, Man, our, just our hearts want to take something. But Luther said, but it cannot be done. With men you may boast, but when you come before God, leave all the boasting at home and remember to appeal, he said, from justice to grace. But let anybody try this and he will see the experience of how exceedingly hard and bitter it is for a man who has all his life been mired in his work righteousness to pull himself out of it with all his heart, rise up through faith in this one mediator. He said, I myself have been preaching and cultivating the message of grace for almost 20 years, and I still feel, feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he will give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. He said, and still I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace and yet I know this is what I should and must do. Listen, it's sheer grace. And so as you come to the table this morning, I mean, I'm just preaching. I'm preaching the gospel myself. Or I'm, are you just not humbled? You say, but, but I am... Um, I, I was just kind of a nice guy. You might have been a nice guy. And, and then I, I went to, and I heard the word, and somebody shared with me, all of that's God. He's leading you all the way, giving you his grace and then breathing life into you. Let's go to the Lord's table.